Lord's Word, uh, open the Lord's Word together with you this morning. I'm thankful for the opportunity. We welcome you. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, which hopefully you do by now, um, but uh, turn to, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll read just verses 4 through, through 7 this morning. Um, we invite you to, to stay standing while we do this, or to stand, um, to give honor and attention to the reading of God's Word. For this is the Word of God that you will hear this morning. Um, uh, we will open God's Word and look at it together, but we recognize that, that ultimately this is the Word of God. And so, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, God's Word for us this morning. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag. And is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are thankful for this time when we can gather together Lord, to worship you in song as we already have, to look at your word. Lord, as we have sung this morning of your great, incredible love with which you have loved us. But as we talk about love this morning, Lord, would you remind us of the love that you have so generously bestowed upon us. But also the love that you have called us through your son to have as, as believers, as those whom you have loved. The love that we ought to have for one another, especially as the church. Father God, I pray that uh, as we open the, your word, Lord, that you would reveal those things to our heart that you have for each and every one of us here this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm not up here as often as, uh, as Pastor Chris or Pastor Ben, and so uh, for those who don't know who I am, uh, maybe it makes sense for me to just introduce myself. My name is Caleb Klontz. I am the uh, pastor of Discipleship Ministries here at Valley Bible Church, and so I'm up here from time to time and, and other places from time to time. So um, that's, that's who I am, in case you're wondering. But we are uh, continuing once again our study of 1 Corinthians. After a little break last week, we had a global outreach partner, one of our missionaries here, sharing with us, and I hope you enjoyed that and were encouraged. I know those are always sweet times, special Sundays for me. And so just wanted to... Uh, Begin with that. Um, we are we are studying this uh, this chapter, the love chapter in First Corinthians, and uh, and I want us to maybe just take a minute just to think about the context because we don't want to take uh, this out of the context in which it's found. Um, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He is addressing issues in the church. He is answering questions that they have, and uh, and he arrives in chapter twelve at, at this this issue, this topic of, of spiritual gifts and their use in the church. And at the very end of that last verse of that chapter, he says, and I show you a more excellent way. And then he begins to talk about, about love and the fact that if, even if we have all these other things, if we have not love, those things are, are nothing. And then here in these verses, he goes on to really describe for us these attributes of love. And we've already covered verses 4 and 5, and we'll be trying to tackle 6 and 7 uh, this morning. But Paul has arrived here, and I, I think for Paul this is, this is critical because he gets to this point, and he goes, guys, if you could just understand 
love and love each other the way God has called us to. If we can, if we can get our, our heads wrapped around it, the Corinthians, if they can understand that, then so many of the rest of these things will be worked out in the wash. And we see in these attributes that they relate to things, almost every single one of them, uh, if not all of them, but relate to something that he has addressed or will address as he deals with the issues in the church there in Corinth. They can just love one another. Were it only so simple, when Paul begins to explain what he means by this, and as we have begun to unpack it, we've begun to discover that this crazy little thing called love isn't really all that little. It may be, from a human perspective, perhaps a little crazy for us to think about really loving in this way. Paul isn't, isn't talking about some ethereal love, no. He's talking about a deeper love, a love that is extremely practical and yet very, very broad in its application for us. It's agape love. It's that love with which Christ has, or God has loved us and Christ has loved us. It's also the love that Jesus called us to have one for another. For by this, the world would know that we are his disciples. As we've gone through this study, uh, maybe you've discussed it at home, maybe you've discussed it around the table or with friends, perhaps you've joked like some of us have maybe even around the office about, about having bruised ribs from, from a spouse or a loved one jabbing you a little bit, um, you know, uh, applying to you the things that they think that you need to, to grow in. Um, and we joke about that, but joking aside, we need to be, be careful about even that kind of an attitude because it's really easy for us to look at those around us, those close to us, and in light of these things say, yeah. That person's got a problem. I can judge whether that person's got a problem, right? It's easy to do that. It's easy to see where other people aren't being very loving. And so often we we do that. We use that to judge or we weaponize it even. We take something like a passage like this in Scripture and we, we weaponize it against others. If he really loved me, he wouldn't do that. If she really loved me, she'd be more patient. Those sorts of things. Rather than applying them to our own hearts and our own lives. And so I hope that as we've gone through this and as we continue to go through this, it becomes deeply personal for you as well. Because Paul isn't giving us really a guide to gauge whether other people are being loving, but whether we are being loving. And if I were to look around Valley Bible Church, at least the surface level, I'd say we're a very loving church. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. I know my family and I were thankful for being recipients of the incredible love with which you guys have, have loved us at various points. And we're thankful for that. If I were to look at myself before this study, I probably would have said, yeah, I'm a pretty loving guy. I'm a, you know, I think maybe all of us would probably say that. I mean, I would hope so. But... Uh, but I would have thought of myself as a loving guy, guy and, and yet as we've gone through this study, I've begun to see as God has worked in my heart through the Holy Spirit, just areas where I'm, I'm not very loving, not at least as Paul's describing it. And I've been convicted by some of those things. I'll give you just one quick example. Most of them are, are not big things. They're really little things, but they all add up. It's, it's amazing how we, we, we yeah, fail so often in the little things, but... Uh, I, I like food, in case you can't tell, and I made a meal uh, a couple weeks ago, and I had uh, packaged the leftovers up. There was just enough leftovers for three awesome meals for me to bring to, uh, to, uh, to work to the office here uh, midweek, and I was thinking, yeah, this is awesome. And, and I'd made one of them in, in a little bit different sized container, a little bit bigger, and I'd put all the drippings from the pan, you know, in that one, and that was like, it had the meat on top, a little more than the other ones, and it was the special one, right? 
And I'd put that in the fridge, and I knew that that was the one I was going to take to work that next morning, right? And there were three in there, and I kind of popped it in the back, kind of behind the other ones, and I was thinking to myself, this is, this is awesome. Well, the next day I had a lunch appointment, so I didn't take it, and then, uh, and then I was going to take it the next morning, and I was thinking to myself, oh, this is going to be awesome. And I opened the fridge to grab it on the way out the door, and the meat was gone. The container was there, but the meat was gone from the top, and I thought to myself, who in the world could have done this? The offense, right? The offense. Somebody had eaten the meat, and, and that's not a bad thing, right? They were eating the leftovers. They wanted the protein and not the, the carbs that were underneath, and so they, they had decided to just eat the... And there were, there were two other portions, right? And yet I was, I was just, I was upset. And, and then it hit me, love does not seek its own. What? And I was, I was just so bent out of shape about that. What a stupid thing, right? But that's how it is so often. Often it's not in the big things. We would all look at our lives and go, oh yeah, we're pretty loving. But it's in the little things. And so as we look at uh, God's Word today, hey, we've only been through two verses so far, and I'm already convicted in a lot of areas. So let's go through the rest of these, and hopefully God will give us opportunity to grow um, in our sanctification this week as well. Let's turn our attention to the passage. Uh, Paul begins in, in verse 6 by talking about love's rejoicing, the things that love does and does not rejoice in. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And we see here in this verse, a verse that's really meant to be taken together. It's opposite sides of the same coin. It, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness or wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. And we'll look at them separately just because it's a little easier, at least. And then we'll have less, a couple of lessons just for, for both of them together. But first, uh, let's start with the first half. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. You'll see I put it for your notes, wrongdoing. That was to throw you off in case you tried to fill it off early. You fill it out early in your notes. But anyway... Um, Depending on your translation, this word may be, may be translated as, as uh, unrighteousness and may be translated as wrongdoing, iniquity, evil, perhaps even injustice. It could be translated as wickedness. Uh, I don't think that really matters so much. Um, it's the, the same word that Paul used earlier in the book, not in chapter 5, dealing with uh, the, uh, the man that was uh, caught in sin there um, that they were uh, celebrating, but rather uh, the next chapter when he's talking about the wrongs they'd suffered and uh, in chapter 6 and the lawsuits that they were bringing against one another and uh and so that's the yeah so wrongdoing may fit better i don't know anyway but uh, it doesn't really matter on the translation uh, but the point is this that love does not rejoice in or celebrate or find pleasure in that which is wrong in sin i believe this has a, a kind of a twofold application for us obviously there's the personal one there's a personal aspect that we should not take pleasure in our own sin we should not take pleasure in our sin. We should despise it. We should seek by God's grace to, to remove it from our lives, to eradicate it. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or as the Puritan John Owen put it in his exposition of this same verse, of a whole book on one verse, um, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So there's a personal aspect where we should be not taking pleasure in sin in our own lives. On the other hand, biblical love, at least in this passage, is, is mostly outward focused. And so we want to look at that, how, how 
do we re- rejoice or celebrate in the sin of others? And I think it's easy for us to look at the world and find really clear examples of that, especially today. We can look at the world, um, our, our culture around us is telling us that we ought to, if we, if we really love other people, then we should, we should seek to affirm them wherever they're at, right? We should seek to affirm them even in their sin. Because as they put it, love is love after all. And it really shouldn't surprise us when the world desires to celebrate or rejoice in sin. Romans 1, 28-32 tell us that just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 11-12, looking forward eschatologically, Paul writes, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. The world celebrates sin. We shouldn't be surprised that it does. We shouldn't be surprised that it does, and we shouldn't be surprised... But it does so even more increasingly as we head toward the day of judgment. But Paul isn't really talking about the world. He's addressing the church. He's addressing a church, and he's addressing believers here. And certainly, the truth, it's true that the church should not celebrate unrighteousness, wrongdoing. And as I was preparing this week, I, I remembered a, a clip that I'd seen a couple weeks ago um, Regarding the, uh, the the thing that's happening in, in the Anglican Church, the Church of England, which is divided right now over over this issue of whether or not their bishops should be able to celebrate or bless um, homosexual marriages, homosexual unions. And this young deacon named Calvin Robinson stood up at the Oxford Union and gave this address um, against this decision, standing for the truth of God's word. And he uh, he said this pointed thing directed to the bishops. He said this, you do not have the authority to bless sin. You do not have the authority to bless sin, and none of us do. We don't have the freedom to celebrate it either. Paul has already addressed the Corinthians' arrogance towards sin that was being celebrated in their midst. But really, I think here, it gets even more personal. It comes down to our personal relationships with each other. He's just written above in the previous verse that love does not keep score, keep a record of wrong. So often in relationships, especially ones that are, that are already in turmoil, ones that are in the midst of crisis, situations maybe where, um, where things are falling apart, but also situations where perhaps we're jealous of someone else's success. It can become easy not only to keep score, which we've already learned that we ought not do, 
but to desire or perhaps to find vindication or satisfaction or even pleasure in the failures of others. Often we attempt to mask these with with humor, exaggeration, but they're still there. I saw a meme this week that said this. It had a, the picture was of somebody looking through a fork at another person. I don't know if you ever tried to do that, make them look like they're in jail. But anyway, and it said this, Sometimes when my husband makes me mad, I look at him through a fork and pretend he's in jail. It heals me spiritually. <laughs> what? Right? It's ridiculous. But we use those light, light-hearted, sad, really, things sometimes to mask those same sentiments. And Paul is saying that that sort of thing has no place in love. No, we are called to love even when the other person is unlovable. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rather, as Paul says, the other half of the coin, that love rejoices with the truth. And as we were discussing this around the office this week, this passage, as we are wont to do, Pastor Chris uh, said this, roughly, anyway, I don't know if it's a direct quote, but pretty close. Whenever truth is throwing a party, love is throwing a party. Whenever truth is throwing a party, love is throwing a party. Love rejoices with or celebrates with the truth. And the men's study on the, uh, on the first and third Tuesdays of the month, men, you're welcome to come out, 6.30 a.m., um, a men's study. We're going through Nehemiah. But we're, we're at the place in Nehemiah right now where, where the wall has been built, the gates are hung around Jerusalem, and then the people are going to gather and, and to hear God's Word. They're going to hear the law of God read to them. And the book of the law is brought out, and, and, and it's read, Nehemiah and Ezra read, read it. And when the people hear the words of the law, they begin to weep and mourn because they recognize that they have not upheld God's law. They begin to, to mourn this. And so Nehemiah and Ezra, along with the priests and Levites, they go to the people and they tell them this, This day is, a holy, is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to, the, to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 12 tells us, All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great feast, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Love is like that. It celebrates with the truth. When the truth of God's Word is held up and proclaimed, are your affections stirred? Do you rejoice with the truth? When we come to our gatherings on Sunday morning, is it out of a sense of obligation or or to celebrate the truth, to listen to God's Word, to read it together, and to, to rejoice? John writes in Second Second John or two John four. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. And he echoes that again in his third epistle, third John three four, three through four rather. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how your children are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, 
to hear of my children walking in the truth. John rejoiced when he heard that others were walking in the truth, and we ought to as well. But what about us? When one of our, our children or, or a spouse or some other loved one or, or a brother and sister in Christ come to us and confess sin, failures on their part, maybe toward us or in general, is it our knee-jerk reaction to celebrate? Or do we instead begin thinking first about consequences, discipline, not that those things aren't true or important that they may come, but how do we react Do we celebrate when we learn or hear, as we did last week, of others hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Christ? We should. Or this evening, when people come and give their testimonies before they're baptized, what a great opportunity for us to come to celebrate together what God is doing as people proclaim the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. So a couple of lessons for us. Is truth celebrating? If so, then love celebrates with it. So celebrate. If truth is celebrating, celebrate with it. Because love does. A good litmus test for us. But on the other hand, don't celebrate what truth cannot. Don't celebrate what truth cannot. If there's something that's, that's happening that, that cannot be celebrated by the truth, you say, what would God's Word bring to bear in this situation? Don't celebrate it if it can't. Moving on to verse 7, we see the magnitude and steadfastness or constancy of love. Paul finishes up this long line of, of love's attributes with this short, rapid-fire list. It may be 12 words or 9 words or 13 words, depending on what translation you have. It's 8 words in uh, in the Greek. 8 short words. Um, It's strikingly pointed, if not also a little poetic. We'll see it here and read it, I'm sure. Some of you probably can better than I can, for sure. But anyway, um, it begins with this word. Each one begins with this word, panta. So, panta... Stege, I know it could be stege, depends on whether it's a modern Greek translation or, or rendering. Anyway, I'll try and read it though. Panta stege, panta pisteve, panta elpise, panta hupomene. The first observation we can make here is that this verse has panta four times. It's, a, it's an interesting word, and your, your version may translate it a couple of, of different ways. Your version may say, as the one we read this this morning, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It may also say that it always bears, always believes, always hopes, always endures. And so which is it? Is it all things or is it always? Because those are different, right? Is it talking about the extent or is it talking about the duration? And the answer, I believe, is yes. Yes and then some even more than we could describe with either of those because this word panta is a superlative and there's no real contextual evidence to give us an indication of what what he's meaning and i and i think that's intentional for paul i think for paul he he's not giving us any qualifiers we like qualifiers right especially in something like this we're talking about loving somebody and what we're called to do or anything we're called to do actually we want the qualifiers okay well what about this situation Paul, I think you might have left out that time when this guy does this thing, I shouldn't have to love him, right? 
Or that whole, well, I can love them, but not like them, right? That's a, a common one. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul doesn't give any qualifiers here, and I don't think he intends to. This is the level of the magnitude and, and steadfastness of this love that Paul is saying that we ought to have for one another. It's a love that can only come from God, especially a love of this magnitude. So let's look then at these final four attributes. The first, I have just replaced it with all bears, all believes, all um, in your outline. You can follow all along there. But uh, love all bears, not all bears, not like the animals, but love all and bears. So not to be confusing, but anyway. Uh, it is translated, uh, or sorry, Paul begins this with with uh, love all bears, and this word bears is is translated uh, in other places as endures. It's actually only used three times in the New Testament, and only by Paul. And Paul is wont sometimes to do that, where he takes a word and kind of almost makes it up, and and it comes from the root word uh, that means roof, and so Paul makes a verb out of it. So love roofs. So anyway, there you go, love love roofs. Um, but, but with that in mind, really, it, it has multiple, um, uh, at least meanings application-wise, um, because it could mean to protect, to cover, to support, to, uh, to as is translated in our translations, to bear. And much like a roof covers and protects, love also covers and protects. It covers the offenses done against it, not making public that which can be resolved in private. Proverbs 10:12 tells us hatred stirs up strife but love covers all transgressions. And in 1 Peter 4:8 Peter addresses the same thing with these words, above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, in the same way that we should not rejoice in the sins or failures of one another, we also should not make them public if they can be handled in private. Love guards those things. How easily we can be tempted to divulge those things shared or confessed in private with others. How easy for us to share the failings of a spouse or a brother or a sister in a way that not only damages them but, but makes us look good. So often that is our, our motivation. But sometimes even worse, yeah, we do it so that we might build, begin to build a case against someone. And this is not only not loving, it's gossip, it's sin. Sin. So love does not make public that which can be resolved in private. Love covers. This does not mean, however, that it overlooks or makes excuses for or defends sin. Sin must still be dealt with. Love covers and protects, but like a roof, it also supports and bears up under whatever weight it encounters, regardless of whatever is thrown at it. Love bears the weight of offenses done against it at great cost, and it bears the burdens of others. In his commentary on this, uh, on this verse, John Calvin writes, The effect is that everyone wishes that others should carry him upon their shoulders, but refuses for his part to assist others. The remedy for this disease is love, 
which makes us subject to our brethren and teaches us to apply our shoulders to their burdens. And he goes on to quote Galatians 2, or 6 2, rather, where Paul writes, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Love comes alongside of a brother or sister struggling under a heavy load and applies its shoulder to help carry that burden. Love all bears. It's a constant. It always bears all things. A couple of lessons for us here. Love doesn't defend or overlook sin, but seeks to protect the one who has sinned. Love doesn't defend or overlook sin. No, we must deal with sin, but it does seek to protect the one who has sinned. And then secondly, love applies its shoulder to the burdens of others. Love applies its shoulder to the burdens of others who must seek to carry one another. Moving on, we see that love all believes. This does not mean that love believes everything it hears as though it does not seek to discern what is true from what is false. No, we've already seen that love does not rejoice in, in, in unrighteousness, in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Rather, love's default disposition should be one of trust. No matter the situation or the circumstance, love is not skeptical or cynical or suspicious of others but believes the best. I remember the story of Job when Satan is permitted to, to take everything from Job, and he takes everything, and uh, his family, his, his goods, only his wife remains. His wife even comes to him and tells him, um, or the, no, then he's covered with boils, right? So uh, on top of that, painful, painful boils all over his body, left in pain and agony, and his wife comes and tells him that he should even curse God and die. And then his friends come. His friends come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And, it, and the, the, if you read the story, it kind of seems like, oh, this, this is great. Finally, some friends being, being friends, being there for one another. And then we soon discover, however, that they are skeptical of, of Job, that he must have done something wrong. There must be something that he, he must be able to think of something that would, would uh, cause him to deserve this. That's not love. Love does not assume, but it trusts. John Calvin again says this, that the consequence of this attribute will be that, Christian, that a Christian man will reckon it better to be imposed upon by his own kindness and easy temper than to wrong his brother by an unfriendly suspicion. This is admittedly difficult for us to trust one another. <clears throat> Why? Because really none of us are trustworthy. We fail each other time and time again. We fall short. We prove ourselves untrustworthy. And so our trust cannot be based on the actions of another person, but rather on the trustworthiness of God. For it is God who is faithful. He's faithful to forgive, to cleanse, to, to restore us when we sin. In the same way, we too ought to be faithful to forgive and quick to restore others. 
Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. The lessons. First one, do you, do you trust God? Do you trust Him? I know that's come up a number of times in, in 1 Corinthians. But so much of our trust and reliance on others is dependent on our faith and our trust in God. Do you believe that He has a plan for you that, that is for your good and His glory? Do you trust Him? Do you believe that He has worked mightily in your life? Do you then disbelieve that He can work mightily in the life of others? I hope not. But the same God who works in you works in me and works in each one of us. Do you trust Him? And then secondly, love is a harbor of trust. For this years ago, actually, I saw it again, came across it again from John MacArthur, but, but love is a harbor of trust. A place where trust should be fostered and built. Love all hopes is what we come to next. Faith and hope go, go hand in hand. They are inseparably linked. They're, they're referred to so often together in Scripture because our, our faith and trust in God is the foundation of our hope. We really can't have hope without faith and trust in God because hope is that confident expectation that God will act that he will do his will it will be done it is this hope that keeps us praying for the salvation of of a loved one or a friend or 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 a a child year after year after year trusting hoping is this hope that keeps us pursuing children or, or other loved ones or brothers and sisters in Christ who have, who have gone off the rails, friends who have, who have abandoned us, so to speak, maybe even who want absolutely nothing to do with us. It is this hope that keeps us fighting for our marriages in a world that is waging war against the very institution of marriage. Love refuses to give up hope, no matter how hopeless the situation or circumstance. Love never stops hoping. And so a lesson for us, love holds out hope even when the present reality seems hopeless. Brothers and sisters, I do not know what you are all going through in regards to these things. I don't. I know that some of you are in the midst of some pretty challenging situations with relationships. And I urge you, I urge all of you, whatever that situation may be, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Because as we'll see next, love all endures. The last attribute Paul addresses is that love all endures. And the Greek word here is also, uh, it's different obviously than the one up above that could also be translated as endures. Hupomeno. It means simply to, to remain, but as a, as a uh, military term, it can, it can mean to hold a vital position at all costs, at holding the pass to the death. You remain. And it carries this sense of permanence to remain, 
permanently steadfast, immovable. Love doesn't slam the door on its way out because things got tough. Love remains. Love doesn't throw in the towel on a broken relationship. Love remains. Love doesn't break fellowship over a disagreement or or an offense. No, love remains. The end of the matter is this. Whatever comes, whatever it faces, in all and every circumstance, love stays put. Love stays. For the lesson, love always remains steadfast, immovable in every circumstance. Brothers and sisters, I know that this kind of endurance is not easy. It's not. Love comes often at great personal cost. Some of you are weary, no doubt, in your attempts to bend to mend broken relationships, and yet you struggle on out of love. You do well to do that, and I encourage you to keep keep up the fight, keep going. But remember, you can't do it on your own. There's no way in and of our own strength that we can love in this way. No, it takes faith in Christ. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But I exhort you, as you press on, in the same way that the author of the letter to the Hebrews does in 12, 2 through 3, where he says this, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong, suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth or with the truth, always bears all, always believes all, always hopes all, always endures all. I invite the the music team to come forward. If they're here, if they're not, they'll make their way up. Um, As we prepare uh, our our time around the Lord's table, if you have your elements, you can begin to prepare those um, now. If not, uh, you can uh, raise your hand and Usher will bring you some. Um, We have uh, some there. So, As we we, uh, do so, it's it's fitting to recognize that that this is an area, I think, where we all fail. I know for, for sure I have failed. I've seen that. I've confessed that to you even this morning. There are areas where I've seen that in my life. And so perhaps you're like me in that. You have not demonstrated love in some way to others. We fail, but as we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love because He first loved us. And by this, this, the love of God, this love with which He first loved us, is manifested in us that God sent His only begotten Son 
into the world so that we might live through him. The Father demonstrated his love for us in the gift of his Son. And the Son also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We come to the table as those for whom Christ freely gave up his own life. Those for whom Christ died him in our place his life for our life and even if you are not a part of valley bible church if you have trusted in him even this morning we invite you to join us at the table you are a part of god's family so as we think about taking these oops, that wasn't good As we, uh, as we think about this, just listen to these words from Romans 5, verses 8 through 11, which says this, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. As we partake of the wafer, we remember Christ's body broken for us on the cross. We remember as we take of the Jews, his blood shed for us, the new covenant in his blood. And we look forward to his return and we do this until he comes would you partake together with me let's pray father god we are so thankful for your word lord we are thankful for your love that is vast beyond our understanding the love for which you loved us. And Lord, you have demonstrated it to us in your word, attributes of your love contained in this passage. Lord, the, the love that you have for us, but also that love you desire that we would have for one another. Lord, we confess that we cannot love in this way without your help. So Lord, we ask that you would help us in this. Would you strengthen us in our faith? Would you sanctify us so that we might love in such a way that the world would know that we are your disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.